Well, Don Carson, he is a he's a theologian. Uh, he's a uh, evangelical biblical scholar, distinguished emirates New Testament professor. And that just means he retired well, and everybody thought he was awesome. Uh, he's the founder of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he makes this observation. Now, I just give you. He's. I'm always, you know, quoting people and saying this person said that, and who knows who they are, you know. So there's a little rep for for Don Carson. But he says this, and you've heard me say this a few times, I reckon, if you've been here. Uh, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from great grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking uh, we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness, convince ourselves that we've been liberated. And Don Carson in that little um, bit of information is warning against this kind of self-assuring, self-deluding drift of our souls away from holiness, away from a life uh, lived in love of God, in, in faith and trust in Jesus, in independence on the spirit to one of self-love, of self-authority and self-sufficiency. The writer of Hebrews gives us, and he begins with in this chapter, in the second chapter, uh, a similar, rather strong warning. Only the writer makes emphatic what, what Carson implies, that such a drift will come at the expense of your soul. And neglecting such a great salvation that's been provided for you will come at the expense of your soul. This is the first of five warnings throughout the letter uh, about not taking hold of uh, the faith that you, you've heard about, the faith that you've been around. Uh, you've been hearing about this faith. You've been tasting and seeing and, and, and all of this transformation in people's lives around you that the gospel brings and then not allowing yourself that transformation into your own heart. It might have shaped you a little bit, might have made you a better person perhaps by, by hanging around with these things, maybe changed a few of your habits and behaviors, but, but it didn't change your heart and, and its acceptance of Jesus. You sat in church for 5, 10, 15 20 years and you enjoy the coffee, you even serve in, 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 the, in the kitchen there or you serve out in kids church, uh, you, you turn up at the working bees and you tithe, you even like this Jesus character. But this Jesus character never fitted the description in these opening verses of Hebrews that we looked at last week, we'll look at them again, of this unchallenged king creator, sustainer of your life, the one who has purified you from sin and is now representing you before God and enabling and sustaining your life. You see, after establishing these things, these things were established in the first chapter, the, superior, the superiority of the person and the work of Jesus. And it was just these breathtaking images, these metaphors, uh, and Old Testament fulfillment, that Jesus is the final and comprehensive word of God. 
And then he made these big, bold statements about Jesus. And then he kind of went into this particular extended argument. And we didn't get into it, but here's the highlights. That Jesus is superior to the angels based on the fact that he has a better name. That's verse 4 of chapter 1. One of divine, eternal existence uh, that has always been in place. It never was that he didn't have this name. But now, because of the incarnation, the death and the resurrection, his name has been made public. It's been made known. It's been publicly proclaimed. Indeed, because of this name, it is appropriate that angels worship the Son, be ruled over by the Son, precisely because the Son is their creator. This is all this stuff. Jesus is not to be likened to or preferred to any created spiritual being, no matter how awesome they are. And the point is, and that's why we get this therefore at the beginning of this chapter, it's, it's going, hey, because of all of this stuff, is there anything in the cosmos more deserving of the affection, worship, the servitude of your heart than Jesus? Is there anything more ridiculous than ignoring that and, and drifting away from it? The warning stands with this certain amount of... Uh, logical self-evidencing and that's why the chapter begins with therefore you know of course in view of all that has been said about the son it would be something rather foolish and something altogether rebellious to not to pay attention to how God has spoken to us through Jesus such a careless and casual approach would allow you to drift away from salvation would allow you to drift back into the usual patterns of life that existed patterns that don't recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for you the author uses the imagery and the language of a boat drifting about without an anchor or or or, or a fastening that holds it in place that holds it kind of pointing rightly towards the port where, where it's safe where where it can take harbor The author's concern is that people in their careless comfort or their their lack of attention would neglect what they've heard. That they would fail to allow the message of salvation to take hold in a way that, that begins to transform their heart. And he says, if our ancestors and our fathers received retribution from God's hand of correction and judgment for failure to live faithfully to the message that was mediated by angels, then how much more accountability will there be for those who have heard the message that was of salvation that came through the Son, through Jesus? How will such a person escape God's judgment for neglecting the Son? The author makes this comparison because sometime prior to the first century, prior to the arrival of Jesus, the conviction had spread around that angels had played this mediatorial role in the transmitting of the law, in the the giving of the law uh, to God's people. No doubt that's due to the description that we find of that event in Deuteronomy 33.2, where the angels are involved there. And the fact that angels regularly appear throughout the Old Testament in significant moments of salvation history. They're just popping up all over the place. And you find Paul agreeing with this idea in Galatians 3.19. 
So if this incomplete, but not um, incomplete doesn't mean that it's bad, it just means it needs fulfilling. If this incomplete message spoken by God, mediated from angels, was binding over life and practice to the point that every transgression and every disobedience towards this, this, this word, this spoken word, uh, led to a just retribution or correction from God, you know, things like when... You spend 40 years in the wilderness because you didn't listen or trust God's promise and provision and rest of peace and to go into this land. So off you go for 40 years or maybe a casual little exile in Babylon for not being covenantally faithful. How do you suppose you will escape God's judgment for neglecting the salvation, the rest and peace that has been spoken through his son? And by spoken, the author means that the entire uh, mediation of salvation through through Jesus, his life, his death, uh, his resurrection and his ascension. He's not just talking about the, the, the little words that Jesus spoke. And this question is a rhetorical question that presupposes the answer. You won't. You won't escape that judgment. So don't drift away from this message. This message is true. This message is good. We don't just believe in myths and legends about Jesus. We have a credible eyewitness accounts of the apostles, of what they heard and saw. That's what you have now in your Bibles. So, you know, the same warning might push across the table to us. Ignore it at your peril. Receive it at your preservation. Uh, We have no excuses. You see, salvation was first declared by the Lord through, through the person of Jesus, who is the unique son, who is the, uh, the eschatological event of salvation. Like he didn't just talk about salvation. He didn't just point over there and go, oh, look, there it is. It's, 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 it's over there. Go do 50 push-ups and off you go. No, he is salvation and he provides salvation. He makes purification for sins. He satisfies the wrath of God and then he sits at the right hand of the Father, enabling and sustaining faith in people. This is the good news that God has personally provided the means for humanity to deal with sin and then to once again live as God has created us to live. It was declared first through the person and the work of Jesus, born witness to by uh, those who, who bore witness to Jesus, namely the apostles. And then as the, as the apostles begin to uh, reproduce that message, we know that that message was true and had transforming power of salvation into people's lives because it was validated by the same accompaniment of miracles. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was validated by the, the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And what we have is this Trinitarian activity underpinning the validity of the gospel uh, right out of the gate. You know, miracles that support the apostles' teaching. And then the Holy Spirit giving gifts to people. And if you want to know what maybe the first kind of gift that the Holy Spirit gives to you, you find it in Romans 8.16. And that's the fact that the Spirit testifies to your spirit that you haven't made this up, you aren't crazy, this is real. There is transformation that you can't explain going on in your life. And then you get this crazy desire to serve the church rather than yourself. 
You take these skills and these gifts and you're like, oh, I don't want to use these for my own self-promotion anymore. I want, to, I want to edify, encourage, and build up the church. And you might find stuff that you never knew you had. This is the evidence. This is what people are witnessing. This is what people are seeing going on. It's not something that you drift away from without catastrophic consequences. And there are plenty of things that form the current of drift away from Jesus. And it happens easily at first and imperceptibly. The devil's schemes to distract and are more subtle than they are overt. Hardships and sufferings, busyness in life and attainment of things, care and concern about our comfort and the confusion, the chaos of culture can cause us all to, to drift, can cause people to, to drift from seeing Jesus as a plausible uh, you know, option for life into other things. Even Christians can suffer the drift. And while I don't personally think uh, a person who has experienced the event of new creation can lose their salvation, that's just me. I know people hold other ideas. Um, they can still drift. They can drift away from an effective life of witness for Jesus. They can have times where they, where, uh, of living where they practically live like there are better things in life than Jesus. We can go through, um, there's a 16th century summer or other mystic that said it, but, but C.S. Lewis talks about it, you know, the dark night of the soul, where, where we just feel alone, where we feel like there's that brass ceiling when our prayers go up. This warning comes to us all to say, don't neglect what God has done in your life, or you will drift towards discontent and, and restlessness. Continue to hear, that is, continue to allow the message to transform you. The Christian life is not a static one. There's no such thing as treading water. If you are not pressing forward, if you are not being active about your faith, you will drift. And plenty of Christians drift. And they don't buy into just how dangerous they are meant to be. Christians are meant to be the, not bad dangerous, good dangerous. Christians are the most dangerous people on planet earth because they challenge bad culture. They confront evil. That's what they're doing. So the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 10, hey crew, since we have this great high priest over the house of God, since this Jesus character who we've described in crazy terms, you know, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the exact image of God, all this stuff, since that's the guy who's in charge of this household of people, all you people sitting out here, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then what? Sit around twiddling our thumbs, hoping the magic drops? No. Let us consider how to stir up one another with love and good works. Let's stir each other up in being dangerous people, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some who just kind of sit around and watch church on live stream and never really engage. Oh, no, that's not there. Oh, that's not us. As some are in the habit of, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here or later on, 
is the solution. So don't drift. Gather. Encourage each other. Help each other to pay attention to our lives through reading and preaching and meditating on God's word. Uh, you know, this witness of the apostles that we have through prayer, Monday nights, as Elaine said, through the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he's given the church, like God has given us everything we need to, to stay fast, to hold on. Christians fight the spiritual drift by, by rowing together, by gathering together, by pulling together. And this warning is the same no matter what you think about salvation, any of that stuff. Only a fool and the profoundly proud would be casual and careless about the offer of salvation that has been mediated to them in Jesus. Well, the passage moves on from neglecting this message of salvation that was first embodied in Jesus and spoken about by the apostles to showing why, why this message, why this Jesus character turns up. Why was it necessary for Jesus to make purification for sin and provide such a great salvation? Well, humanity has failed to live as God's image bearers. Making God's goodness and character known through our lives. What we've done, rather, is that we have cho chosen our, our own um, things to image. Our own prescription of what is good. And live out of our own standards. And what a mess we have made. But it's more than a mess. It's a great blasphemy toward God. Rather than our lives showing how good God is, they say how unnecessary God is and how awesome we are. And we believe that in spite of the mess that that kind of thinking creates. You know, the 20th century was supposed to be a century that, that humanity was going to celebrate the great progression of its own achievements of all that it had achieved, and yet it was the bloodiest century on record. We don't see the created order operating in harmony. We saw war, conflict, naked aggression that has seen the murder of over 100 million people and the destruction of cultures, of infrastructure and habitat. The kind of carnies that would have made those under the Roman rule feel comparatively safe. Like, yeah, these Romans, they're not too bad compared to what these Westerners are going to do later on. The author now wants his audience to, to do a bit of theological thinking and to read scripture according to its own internal storyline and see that Jesus is the fulfillment and the climax of that story. After all, that's what we've been speaking about, isn't it? About how Jesus has been enthroned in the heavenlies as the ultimate conclusion to all that the Old Testament pointed to and promised. And he has attained the right to be publicly recognized as king King of the world to come. King of the created order. This is perhaps, you know, one of my most comforting passages in the Bible. Makes me feel slightly less frustrated about my capacity not to memorize scripture. You know, people are always walking up to me like I'm a walking biblical thesaurus or something. Hey Mason, there's a passage somewhere that says, oh, I don't know bro. He says here, it has been testified somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you like that. 
keep memorizing your Bible. Um, in all that speaking to our fathers that God did long ago, he said somewhere, it wasn't angels that God gave the privilege of being the image bearers, his kings and queens, his vice royals over creation. It wasn't to angels that God entrusted the world to come with the role of, of establishment, uh, you know, of, of, of building things and governance. No, it was humanity that he gave that to, that privilege to. And we fail badly, which is why Jesus has had to come to prevail perfectly. In order to be the new head of a new humanity, ruling over a new creation, this kind of environment that we live in, this, this now and not yet. So quoting Psalm 8, 4 and 6, he begins his case. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a while a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything uh, in subjection under his feet. Well, this is King David, and he's, he's, he's giving his own reflection, if you like, his own commentary on the Genesis account. Carson kind of does this parody of it. He says, when I see the stars and the glory all around and the spectacular universe, the untold light years upon light years and everything from the tiniest subatomic particle to the farthest reaches of the intergalactic space, because, you know, that's how King David would have been thinking as he, you know, sums up everything in creation when I see all of that this is David back to David again what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him I mean comparatively this this son of man is no match for an angel with with respect to power he is a lesser being like I'm pretty sure if you got an angel and you stuck a person in a cage and you had an MMA fight the angels winning right but this vessel of clay the truth of the matter is that God has ordained that everything in creation be in subjection and under the human's feet, under humanity's feet. God made human beings to be the guardians, the protectors, the rulers of this world. And that through their kingship over creation, his glory would be imaged and made known and our full humanity would be realized. We had full humanity in the garden at creation we don't need to go about modifying it enhancing it or or homogenizing it we need to get back to what we were what we were created as we have no right to interfere with what it is to be human the second part of verse 8 points out that humanity has failed their god ordained role in the cosmos we do not see the world in subjection to humanity. No, rather, we saw humanity misled by an angelic being, the Satan, in the form of a creature. This is the whole creation order reversed, flipped on its head. And then decreational power of sin entered into the world relationally, uh, ecologically, spiritually. And now we have this broken world of our own making, and we are not qualified or capable of fixing it. William Craig in his commentary says that the extravagance of humanity's position and purpose in, in, in verse 8a is mocked by the human experiences in verse 8b. Nevertheless, the way the Psalm 8 is written, the author expects that at some point the mocking and the unfulfilled destiny of humanity will be reversed and fulfilled. 
Over the centuries, civilization and humanity have turned to politics and power and education, economics, ways to try and fix the world. But fundamentally, the issue of sin remains. And it pervades everything. And even our best ideas are turned in on themselves. And David, who's writing this psalm, who writes this reflection, writes it as the king of Israel. His role is to be the head of God's people, to lead them in worship and obedience. And he has done no better. He has failed in this role as well. And he is a man after God's own heart. He's the very best of us, and he still can't. Undo what sin has done to the human condition. Humanity cannot restore its lost glory and governance that God intended for them. We need a perfect human, a perfect king, who can bring effective change, who can succeed where every single person to live has failed. And so, sure enough, in verse 9, the author will begin to apply this text of Psalm 8 uh, not to humanity in general, as it was originally the reflection of King David, but to one human, in particular, Jesus. But we see him, for a little while, made lower than the angels. Now who's he talking about? Who, who's Hebrews talking about? Namely, Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God... He might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their faith salvation perfect through suffering. Into the human story, into, the, into human history comes Jesus, the eternal son, who now in the incarnation in a similar way to humanity is made a little lower than the angels. However, this position will be temporal just for a little while. Jesus has added humanity to his divinity. He has become in every way like people. And in doing so, he has become mortal. He has become killable. And through this, he will taste death, experience death. Not because he is powerless to avoid it or because like us, he deserves it. But because this is the gracious plan of a triune God. And it is precisely because in Jesus we find someone who exhibited humanity's true vocation to image God perfectly, to live obediently, never at any moment neglecting God's word for humanity over his life. And in Jesus we also find someone who fulfills the messianic vision of dealing with sin by dying as a substitute in humanity's place because he did all of that. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. After a little while of humiliation, now exalted in a place of original glory and sovereignty. And in this way, Jesus fulfills the vision of Psalm 8, where all creation is in absolute subjugation to Jesus. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. And the final Adam, the second Adam, if you like, Jesus was plunged into sin and death for the sake of humanity's salvation and Jesus glory this, this new exalted position that he has um, will be our glory 
this new world to come, the future that Jesus has secured for all believers, one of restored glory, is ours. An existence without sin and the decreational effect is disordered and dysfunctional loves and priorities. The plan of salvation that saw God take on flesh, live and die as humanity's representative was a fitting one. The action covered the offense and satisfied the justice of God and in doing so has brought many sons, many people to glory into this new condition. Jesus is viewed here as the pioneer and champion, one who opens the way of salvation by being the means of salvation. Because Jesus has faced and defeated the powers of sin and the claim of death and is now vindicated with eternal life, those who trust in him, place their faith in him, will likewise enjoy the same eternal life and the same restored glory. Sounds kind of cool and crazy, doesn't it? Indeed, Jesus' holiness is our holiness. Verse 11 tells us that he sanctifies us, makes us holy, sets us aside, begins something new in it, and that we are sanctified. This change of condition, both before God and within our hearts, sets off the process of active transformation where, where sin's desires are replaced with the work of the Holy Spirit and also identifies us as members of God's family. New creations. And not ones that he ignores at Christmas parties because he's embarrassed by our messiness, but ones that he proudly claims as trophies of his grace. God's plan, his promise and his provision in Jesus make those who don't ignore it or drift back from it the kind of new humanity that he originally intended us to be, what he designed for us to be. In the last section of this chapter 2 uh, continues this argument of solidarity of Jesus um, through his humanity via his work as the perfect high priest who once and for all defeats death and the devil. And we don't often think of Jesus in categories of needed to convince people about his humanity. It's usually his divinity that people have an issue with. Not so for those who saw Jesus and proclaimed the nature of his existence. Almost everyone in the first century accepted spiritual beings and, and maybe surely Jesus is just another powerful spiritual being. So the author moves to give credence to Jesus' humanity which qualifies him to act on our behalf in our place. Jesus being like us, taking on flesh and blood, can achieve for us what we can't. Because at the level that matters, he is not like us. He is perfect with respect to fulfilling the creation mandate for humanity. So he writes, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He, he, he's helping people. 
Therefore, he had, to make, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God and make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's, it's a passage about the profound humanity of Jesus. The limited power of Satan, the power that he had, he used as a tool to cause death in humanity. The devil and his fallen powers and principalities uh, never overcame Jesus with, with this weapon, with this, with this temptation. Rather, Jesus, never once dipping into his divinity and only through his humanity, lived as no person has ever lived. Despite facing unrelenting power of sin, Jesus was perfectly faithful to God's word over his life. And he suffered for it. And they say, and it's written somewhere, that he suffered to the point of death. It matters that Jesus suffered. It means that his sacrifice on our behalf took no shortcuts. It was a life that wasn't a sheltered one. Like God kind of hid Jesus in a corner somewhere and just kind of rolled him out for the cross. Jesus in his humanity faced what we face from the devil. It matters because it means uh, we have a God who knows what it's like to have uh, your head and your heart, your whole um, person assaulted by sin and its forces. And to not give in and to not surrender, but rather uh, deliver a, a knockout blow back the other way. It means that Jesus is not some superficial help for his brothers and his sisters, but one who has defeated what afflicts us. And so now his action on our behalf is to declare, is to declare that reality. You are his. You know, you are his. It's what he's sitting in heaven. If you've, if you've trusted in Jesus, you, you've believed in this stuff that Hebrews is talking about, and then the first thing Jesus is saying to you and for you is that you are his. And the second thing that he's doing is to intervene in the drift and to give practical help to those who are being tempted. And you say, how's he doing that? Well, look around this room, people. Look around at your brothers and sisters who Jesus is not ashamed of. You have all the encouragement you need in this room. Look at that thing you've got in your hand, whether it was on a phone or in, don't you remember that stuff called paper? You have the word of God, first attested to by Jesus and then delivered by the apostles, and we know it's valid. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life all of this stuff to stop the drift that's the promise and the warning is ignore it at your peril let's pray loving God we thank you uh, again <laughs> each week you're a God who speaks and you have spoken clearly to us through Jesus about what he has done for the human condition and, uh, and what he offers to humanity. 
that you yourself have come and dealt with sin, that you have done all that needs to be done to, 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 to cleanse us of uh, sin that derails all kinds of things in life and separates us from God. And then you replace that with a life in Christ. For those of us who have taken hold of that, the prayer is that we, that we wouldn't just be casual and careless about that. That we'd be sowing into that, that we'd be investing into that. Meeting, gathering, praying, reading, catching up with each other, not, not neglecting the things that you have given us. For those of us that haven't taken hold of that, this is perhaps the scariest warning in the world. You can delude yourself into thinking that you're there, but you're not. Pray that God's spirit would, 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 would just awaken you to the truth of the matter and that your soul would finally surrender, not to Jesus as an add-on or an app or some way of improving your life, but to Jesus as Lord, someone you have to die to get to know. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.